Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Okay, so are we ready? I'm ready. Welcome to the Gallery Gap, a podcast that explores inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, programming, and collections. My name's Claire Kovacs. And I'm Melissa Moore. Thanks for being here. Tax Day is around the corner, so in this episode, we thought it would be timely to talk about federal support for agencies that fund the arts and also the humanities and public media. So specifically, we decided to talk about the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Institute for Museums and Library Services, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, all of which stand to be severely diminished or eliminated by Number 45's proposed budget. Um, and we want to be absolutely clear about this. Uh, the Americans for the Arts said this is the first American president in history to propose zeroing out all funding for the nation's federal cultural agencies. Yeah. <laughs> so, in fact, the president has even gone so far as to call these cultural agencies wasteful. Yeah, I can't help but think of that that video that I'm sure some of our listeners have seen. But if not, we'll put it on the web page of uh, Elmo getting fired. Hey, what's going on? Oh, thanks for coming in, Elmo. Uh- we have something very important to discuss. Elmo happy to help. Elmo loves to help. Elmo, uh, it does mean no great joy to inform you that due to recent cuts in government funding to PBS, you are no longer employed by Sesame Street Workshop. Huh? What? Elmo, you're being laid off. Just like that? Elmo's been working at Sesame Street for 32 years! Exactly. Poor Elmo. It hurts my heart. <laughs> Poor um. Elmo. Well, and then that um, there's an area artist, Jason Platt, who's an illustrator, and he did this um, this bit about Big Bird, the yeah. hit job on yeah. Big Bird, yeah, which is great. He shared that during Pachacacha last week. Yeah, and yeah, we'll share that with you, too, yeah. um, dear listeners. I mean, Big Bird and Elmo, that, that we grew up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, that was some of our earliest formal, I guess informal, but and yet formal at the same time learning that happened yeah. was through some of the shows on PBS. And some of my earliest memories are at an art museum taking a class and and making something afterwards. I, I look back to that as as the beginning of my interest in the arts and really probably where this all began. So I want to go back and see that beautiful thing that I made. I think my mother still has it. <laughs> I have so. some ceramic pieces from my first clay class. Oh, yeah, yeah. Put those on we display. won't share those with you. Don't oh, worry. no, no. That's going to be our next, next exhibit <laughs> in your galleries. <laughs> I mean, this is a really troubling and problematic issue for a number of reasons. The NEA cost $148 million last year, which is just 0.004% of the entire federal budget. 0.004% of the entire federal budget. And in 2014, which is the most recent year that this is analyzed, the arts contributed $4.2 or $729.6 billion to the GDP. To make that happen, the government at the federal, state, and local levels contributed 13.5% of the overall budgets of these programs. Now, 13.5% of the budget, that provides a GDP of 4.2% of the GDP, or $729.6 billion. I'm no businesswoman or economist, but that seems like quite a reasonable ROI to me. 
And ROI, of course, is return on investment, yes. just in case. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, on. no, no. But uh, money from the NEA can be seen as a multiplier. From the start, many grants require matching funds as you apply. And often, grant recipients use the NEA seal of approval as a basis to solicit additional funds from private donors and corporations. This often happens at a rate of three private dollars for each federal dollar. Right. And bringing it close to home with the NEA, this makes, makes a large impact in the state of Iowa. And I'll speak to that. I know you're in, right across the river in Illinois, yeah, but right. we really are one community right. here. Um, in fact, did you see the, the Iowa Arts Council recently posted yeah, I saw that. the stats on that? So in it, the Iowa Arts Council stated that NEA funding makes up over 40% of their annual grant-making budget, and this equates to more than one-half million dollars, more than one-half million million dollars every year. <laughs> uh, in addition to that half million dollars, Iowans receive another quarter of a million dollars in direct grants from the NEA per annum. In fact, the FIGI is often a recipient of both the IAC and direct NEA funding, which means, really what this means is that nearly one million dollars goes into to artistic, creative, and educational programs and in, in Iowa, and those are, that are coming from federal funds. So that's a significant amount. In t- 2016, the funded programs and activities occurred in Iowa at 600 locations and in more than 70 counties throughout the state. I mean, this is massive. Yeah, this yeah. is intertwined. It's right, everything. Right. And, and not only are these cultural programs important, but these cultural programs are important to our economy. And the economic impact of these dollars locally is also massive. As part of the Arts and Economic Prosperity Study 4, so they've done this four times and they're in the process of the fifth, which is a project of Americans for the Arts, the Quad Cities region participated in a 2013 study of the economic impact of nonprofit arts and culture organizations. And we'll, the summary, which we'll link to on the webpage, shows that spending by arts and culture organizations and their audiences support jobs. The economic impact of the organizations and their audiences created, and this is just in the Quad Cities area, 1,906 full-time equivalent jobs in the Quad Cities region. So just just here, regionally. And those organizations and audiences generated $2.8 million of revenue to our Quad Cities local government and $4.9 million of revenue to the state government. I mean, even just the event-related spending by audiences totaled almost $40 million in that fiscal year that they had the last study. And that excludes the cost of admission to these organizations and for these events. So that's an average of $20.54 per person per event, excluding admission, which includes um, an economic impact that's coming through meals and refreshments, the sale of souvenirs or gifts, ground transportation and overnight lodging. I mean, this is a vast network, really, that starts through the arts events or programs. And starts through funding for those arts and events and programs. And, and, you know, going back to my comments on ROI or return on investment, (laughs) I think it's a no-brainer. And the repercussions of this and other budget battles are already being felt. So I'm going to read you a little email that literally showed up in my inbox this this week. So it, um, we're recording on Friday. It came into my inbox on Thursday. Dear Claire L. Kovacs, like most federal agencies, the National Endowment for the Arts is operating under a fiscal year 17 continuing resolution, which ends on April 28, 2017. 
Letters informing applicants to their award status for grant categories in Artworks 2, Our Town, Partnership Agreements, and Research Artworks will be delayed pending the resolution of government funding for the remainder of fiscal year 17. The NEA will provide updates as more information is available. Thank you for your patience. So this is this is responding to a grant that we, the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, applied for. We applied for a Artworks grant, Artworks 2 grant for, for next year, and we were supposed to find out the Results of that at some point in time in April, and so this is this was the the email that I woke up to over coffee this yesterday was, morning. This was horrible. It, it does say delay, not deny. Yes, yes, no. Well, but I'm but I'm pointing <laughs> but, out that yeah, we're, we're, we're is, feeling you're this feeling already. the ramifications and, and, of this, and that's not even the the fiscal year 18 that we've we've started talking about. Even just budget delays at a federal level right now is pushing all of that back, which pushes everything back on the ground too well, for and us. Then, and then you add to that the the state level budgetary right. situations. Right. We haven't had a, a, a state budget in Illinois for 22 months and counting, so we haven't had right. any state funding for the arts in 22 months. That's just counting. crazy talk. Yes. <laughs> and yet here we are. Yes, and, and perhaps maybe we should uh, take a step back and think about this in a historical context. How did these organizations even come into existence, and have they faced turtles in the past? Why, Claire, I'm glad that you asked. Yes. <laughs> so President Lyndon B. Johnson created the NEA. This was in 1965, and it came as a response to issues of inequity. Surprise, surprise. Uh, such as poverty, racial injustice, uh, which was prevalent at that time and unfortunately still prevails, um, is still pervasive in our time. So the NEA was just one of many social programs that the president began at that time, all of which were really meant to serve, um, as he put it, quote, not only the needs of the body and the demands of commerce, but the desire for beauty and the hunger for community, end quote. And these programs, along with others, are really known together as the Great Society. And this is the project that strongly resembled what FDR had done with the New Deal. Right. And when it was established, the idea was not to create government-approved art, but rather to emphasize, advance, and prioritize artistic freedom and creativity. And to make this perfectly clear, Congress wrote into that NEA law, and I'm going to quote here, it is necessary and appropriate for the federal government to help create and sustain not only a climate encouraging freedom of thought, imagination, and inquiry, but also the material conditions facilitating the release of creative talent. They really attempted to create an agency that was unbeholden to political pressure, uh, allowing it to support a variety of artistic practices uh, from the traditional all the way to the radical. In their Senate report on one bill, they acknowledged why this was so important. Here's another quote. Countless times in history, artists and humanists who were vilified by their contemporaries because of their innovations in style or mode of expression have become prophets to a later age. So really the result was an elaborate peer panel structure that was meant to insulate the endowment from political pressure. And this worked pretty well for the first 24 years or so. Right. And then in 1989, the train began to come off of its tracks. And, and, and we, we can think about why. And in her book, Sex, Sin, and Blasphemy, a guide to America's... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All I'm talking about here is blasphemy. 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 Blasphemy everybody in the room. Blasphemy everybody in the room. I'm just going to blasphemy and... Bl- <laughs> do you remember that? I though? do remember that. That was uh, Eddie Izzard when we uh, we took an uh, adventure to Chicago. You right? are my true soul sister. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So go back yeah, to. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to get back to what you just um, rudely interrupted me uh, in talking about while you singing. You love me. You know yep. it. 
I do. So so let's get back to what the heck is going on in 1989. The train comes off its tracks, and uh, let's let's try to think about big picture. What are what are some of the reasons? And so Marjorie Hines, in her book Sex, Sin, and Blasphemy. No singing that time, okay. A Guide to America's Censorship Wars. She outlines four reasons. Number one, increasing power and visibility of America's fundamentalist right and the, its stress on, quote, social issues, including sexuality, the proper place of women, patriotism, and religion. Number two, demagogues who distract attention away from social problems by arti- attacking artistic rebels and other dissenters. Number three, an antagonism on the part of many Americans towards the arts or high culture. And number four, what she sees as the inability of the arts world, the art world to mount a unified defense or produce strong, defiant, eloquent, and credible spokespersons who could confidently put those demagogues in their place. Right. And really, Serrano's Piss Christ and Maplethorpe's The Perfect Moment are two perfect works to rile up dissenters like um, well, like Senator Jesse Helms, who had long thought that the government should not be in the business of funding art. This evolved into the misleading slogan that we've heard, um, the slogan of it's the taxpayer's money, and the, the insistence that it not be spent on projects that were deemed sexually explicit, homoerotic, unpatriotic, or insulting to organized religion. Those artists, those artists who wanted to create such work could do so on their own time and dime. The government just wouldn't sponsor such works. Sponsorship, not censorship, became another popular refrain. Right. So Robert Maplethorpe's portfolio includes some of his most explicit imagery. And though this work has been regularly displayed in publicly funded exhibitions, organizations such as the American Family Association seized on this exhibition, a perfect moment, to vocally oppose government support from what the, for what they called, and I'm quoting here, quote, nothing more than the sensational presentation of potentially obscene material, end quote. As a result, Maplethorpe became something of a cause celeb for both sides of the American culture war, and the installation of the perfect moment in Cincinnati resulted in the unsuccessful prosecution of the Contemporary Arts Center of Cincinnati and its director, Dennis Berry, on charges of pandering obscenity. This battle really set the stage for two ideological restrictions put on the work supported by the NEA. The first barred it from supporting any art that might be considered, air quotes, obscene, sometimes known as the Helms Amendment. All grant recipients were required to sign a certification, accepting that this obscenity oath, as it was soon called, you know, you're doing air quotes in the studio. Our listeners can't, can't <laughs> Dang see it. that. But I'm going to keep talking yeah, about the NEA right Yeah, you get us back. I'm not too far. <laughs> Things did, did not abate. In early 1990, news leaked that of the 18 artists who were recommended by the peer panel, three were gay and addressed homophobia and LGBTQ experiences in their work. Holly Hughes, Tim Miller, and John Fleck. Another artist, Karen Finley, was the subject of provocative publicity about her performance works that utilize her body and various foodstuffs to address themes of incest, rape, violence, poverty, and discrimination. The four artists were attacked in the press, and the NEA chair, John Fronmeyer, decided to override the panel's suggestions and denied the grants. The artists sued, and it was during this period that the second restriction was enacted that all grants had to take into account, quote, general standards of decency and respect for the diverse beliefs and values of the American public, end quote. This, like the Helms Amendment before it, was successfully challenged in court, 
with the court ruling that it was unconstitutionally vague and hindered free expression. However, this did not mitigate the political climate that the NEA operates within. And perhaps maybe now that we've, we've set the stage of what's happened in the historical past, we should shift back to the, the, the contemporary moment. Right. While the NEA has struggled with its own accusations of elitism, it's true, it has done a great deal to really level the playing field and bring much-needed support to creative individuals and organizations across the country, and especially in rural and smaller metropolitan areas and underserved populations. In fact, 65% of the NEA's direct grants go to smaller arts organizations that have a harder time getting private donor support. The NEA funds enable programs to continue in these underserved communities where the arts are brought to audiences, um, which oftentimes include veterans and school children, and who are often in impoverished neighborhoods. So let's summarize. Let's think about our thoughts on the current culture and budget crisis in four points. Yep, I have one. Okay. So we want to we want to encourage people to reflect on personal experiences with public radio, TV, etc. Really, just um, think about those personal experiences and, and think about the cultural institutions and agencies that are part of your life now or have been part of your upbringing and think about how integral federal funding is to those organizations and to our experiences. Right. Number two, mm-hmm. it's, it's thinking about digging into the actual money that it, that these federal funds and state funds provide to our, our communities. If federal funds are removed, as you mentioned, it will hit small communities, underserved populations and rural areas harder than big cities. Larger established organizations in larger cities will likely weather the storm through private support, but there are, even even so, there's there's questions of sustainability on all fronts. And you know, thinking about those smaller populations, federal funding really does provide economic growth across the board, but but really in our communities, as we discussed, jobs, funding for state local governments, money spent beyond admission at businesses in our our communities really we share these numbers we shared these numbers for the quad city region but we'll link it to a larger report so that you can get a sense of the impact in your own region because it's really it's un, it's astounding right and and makes me happy and that was your number three right yes okay number three <laughs> so number four to round this off remember that your elected officials work for you Go to town halls or other public events to share your thoughts. Reach out and share your thoughts with them through email, through phone calls, and as I said, in, in, in public spaces. And we'll include yet another link on the webpage. So if you haven't figured it out by now, check out our webpage on wvik.org. There's going to be plenty of stuff for you there. If you don't know how to contact your officials from number 45 all the way down to your city or local officials, there's a, there's a great resource to get you started that'll be on the webpage. Good talk, Claire. It's an important talk, you know. I, I, I don't want people to leave listening to this podcast feeling like there's nothing that they can do and that the the fight's over. So I want this to, to be uh, an optimistic talk, you know, talking some some real issues that we're we're facing. So Claire, I feel like this has been a good starter conversation about these federal agencies that provide so much funding, that provide so much uh, positive impact in our communities, and especially in our community here in the Quad Cities. Hopefully people will check out these resources. I mean, you and I were talking earlier about how we need to stay active. Yeah. In some ways, 
the evolution of this podcast came from those types of conversations. From um, inspiration and rage yes. in equal <laughs> equal parts. Did I say that in the first episode? I well, know. I did now. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, that feeling of helplessness, hopelessness, when you're so used to, um, especially in the nonprofits, you're so used to running on passion. You know, we're fueled by passion. We, we truly believe in all of this, and we know that you do too, listeners. So action steps forward right there are and, lots of them right. right and so so check out the resources and thanks for listening to the beginning of this conversation but this isn't the final episode we're gonna keep going moving forward talking about important artists and thinking about equity in museum spaces so why don't you tell us what's up next week well, next week we celebrate Earth Day, Earth Day. So we're going to talk about artists and the environment. But in addition to that, we're going to pull in uh, STEM and STEAM. Right. We're going to bring that A and uh, celebrate the Science March. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, or of course, you can always listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website, too, in case you'd like to contact us and tell us just how delightful our voices are to your ears, or if you actually want to share with us or talk about issues. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, don't, of course, don't forget to follow us on Facebook. And as always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. A special thanks to our production team, Lacey Scarmana and Alfredo Monteca. And this podcast would still just be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pate's design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. And last but not least, thank you to all of our listeners. I'm watching you. <laughs> Talk to you next week.